One of the first people to take me sailing and get me involved in sailing was a farmer named Jack. To quote Guy Clark, we were friends, me and this old man. He was in his, I guess, mid to late 70s at the time. I was a teenager in my late teens. He was one of my granddad's buddies. I didn't know him particularly well before this. I knew some of my granddad's other buddies, but we were at a lake and he had a sailboat and I was young and enthusiastic, so I went sailing with him. And I really became hooked on sailing. Shortly after that, a couple of years, I had a sailboat and I um, started living in a converted barn out at Jack's place and I kind of kept an eye on things when they were off RVing. I was probably a pain in the butt to them actually. But they were very patient with me. and I got to know Jack very well, went sailing with him a lot. He was a really important part of my early life. I hope he, I hope he knew it. He probably didn't. I am trying to get better at the gratitude thing, but I was definitely grateful for his friendship, and for the sailing. Jack was in love with making things and gizmos and machines, and he helped me out a lot in, in that department too and sort of learning about making things. Last time I saw him alive, I'd recently moved home and started my job. I was driving downtown past a restaurant. I was in my my hot rod, my 65 Chevy pickup, and Jack was leaning over this 29 Ford Model A. It was a cool car. It was around town for a while. It was purple and it had kind of Von Dutch style pinstriping on it. Winner's quick change rear end, hairpins in the front. And a little Corvette, Corvette 283 in it from the 50s. It was a kind of hot rod you would build, you know, as a someone who just graduated from high school in 1962. I saw Jack leaning over the hood, pointing to some piece of fabrication, probably a, a weld or something he admired, showing it to his wife. I never really reconnected with him when I moved back to town, and I regret it, but I, but I really love that last image of him. I spent a lot of time with him and I really enjoyed his company. I really enjoyed his stories. He was a, a great storyteller. You know, like a lot of that generation, he didn't think of himself as somebody who had much to do with words, but he had great words. One of his great stories, he told me <clears throat> he was Young, shortly after the war, Jack, like a lot of uh, those guys in that crowd, got a military deferment because he was a farmer and he had a place he was renting to somebody after the war. It was a guy who came back and he was explaining to me he came back with a, with a little English girl, Jack would say. Because, you know, that whole generation referred to grown women as girls, I guess. He was telling me the story. They rented him. They rented them this house on their place, and he says she comes over to the house one day and pays the rent. And he was 
out in the yard in front of the barn, welding together a plow. He had it all set up. He's tacked together. He's about to weld it. She comes up and he's like, and she's this pretty little thing. She's about five feet tall. And so I say to her, okay, well, you just finish up this weld and I'll go inside and write you a receipt. And he says, so I go inside and I write the receipt and I come back and I look down and brother, if I could have laid down a weld like that, I'd have quit being a farmer that very day. I was very impressed by her great welding skills. Of course, she'd worked in a factory as a welder during the war. Like a lot of women, she had very, uh, she was very highly skilled at that kind of labor. There was even a theory that was probably right that women were better welders and machinists and more detail-oriented. And then following the war, women got kind of aggressively driven out of the workforce. There was propaganda that suggested, more than suggested, that they should give up their jobs for men and that men had earned them through participation in the war. Most people have seen the wartime poster of Rosie the Riveter. She's become a cultural icon. Or the sailor girl, if I was a man, I'd sign up. You know, all the kind of do your part to be in the factory quickly turned into do your part and leave the factory following the war. And those women probably, some of them wanted to continue to work. Jack's English girlfriend might have uh, wanted to continue to be a welder. My grandma, my mom's mom, was a Rosie the Riveter. She worked in an airplane factory, riveting together airplane wings. I don't know too much about it, actually, and it's a real loss to our family history. I wish we had some more complete record of that. I remember really clearly one thing that she told me, though. She said that that when they worked on the airplane, she said the girls would always chew gum, and if they made a they made a bad rivet, they'd take a little piece of gum and they'd jam it on top of the rivet because the inspector would go by and you have a white glove on, uh, you know, like light cotton glove, the kind you use in a library, and he would run his hand along the rivets and if one of them snagged the glove or rattled they'd have to drill it out and fix it which was a hassle so they would just take that piece of gum and plug it down on top of the rivets so I like the idea that those rivets that uh, held those airplanes together to make all those bombing missions and supply runs were at least partially held together by my grandma's spit Women didn't just make the airplanes either during that period. You know, there were a lot of female pilots in the Air Force. A few years ago, there was a kind of fight to get them recognized in Arlington Cemetery and to get, you know, a recognition that they were veterans of the war. They flew a lot of really dangerous supply missions, and they flew a lot of janky, jacked-up airplanes to repair facilities that would come back shot up. So they 
flew a lot of dangerous missions. After the war, there were a, a lot of women who had a lot of hours on multi-engine aircraft, and they would have been really, really well suited to join the burgeoning uh, air travel industry as pilots. But again, they were not asked to do that, and many of those women had to give up their flying careers when the war ended. In 1934, a woman named Helen Ritchie was hired as a co-pilot for one of the earliest commercial airline enterprises, but it wasn't until 1973 that Emily Warner was hired um, to be, you know, a, an airline captain. So, at the beginning of aviation, there was no sense that flying was a man's job. But then, following the war, women took a break. But it's interesting that, that uh, you know, during the women's movement, women began to come back into that. They're still, I'm sure, dramatically underrepresented in that industry. At least as pilots, anyway. So, yeah, my grandma was a Rosie the Riveter. I wish I knew more about it. I wish I'd have known her more as an adult, obviously. There's a great painting and commentary on Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter is, is still a, a sort of iconic figure in, in the women's movement and feminism. I think that um, a lot of young women I know uh, you know, as students, identify with Rosie the Riveter and, and have the have that image in their mind. A lot of them have her as a tattoo, or several of them do anyway. One of the great images of it and commentaries on it um, that I know about, that I teach sometimes, is Judith Vaca's um, farewell to Rosie the Riveter from her mural, The Great Wall of Los Angeles. The Great Wall of Los Angeles is a really fascinating mural. It's worth checking out. There's a, many versions of it online. She did it originally in the 70s or early 80s. Um, but then she recently restored it with a number of her students, and it's, it's pretty cool. So you can find it online. You should check it out. It, it tells the history of Los Angeles from prehistory up to the time of the construction of the mural and I think it's been extended out beyond that now too but the Rosie the Riveter image is, is kind of interesting because it shows Rosie the Riveter wearing her coveralls and she's got her welding glasses on she's got a wrench in her hand and she's clinging to the outer frame of the painting and it's trying to draw her in and it's interesting what's drawing her in so she's got a hand one hand out and then she's getting sucked into the background and what's drawing her in is a television the television has weird latch looking things on it. it's almost like a toolbox she has a there's a wrench that's free falling in the air and the sleeves of her of her coveralls are still suspended like they're getting drawn backwards so it's like she's 
you know, taken by surprise by her change of vocation by the end of the war. And what's drawing her in is that television and an advertisement on the television that is for a vacuum cleaner. So the vacuum cleaner industry turned towards domesticity and the domestic sphere, trying to suck her back into that, and she doesn't want to go. She's surprised by it. She's looking up to the sky, sort of like, why is this happening to me? And she's still fighting. In the lower right-hand corner, there's a kid with a Daniel Boone hat on, or I guess a Davy Crockett hat, maybe, because Davy Crockett, you know, was popular at the time. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, which was also a significant and unfortunate rewriting of history. It's a self-portrait of Baca behind the television set. She's kind of peering out around that, which is interesting, too, because she's sort of ready to emerge as something like the next Rosie the Riveter. So this idea that convenience and domesticity and being in the home is a great thing, the image portrayed on television at the time with June Cleaver and all kinds of other sort of television shows that idealized that sort of family life that might not have been suited for everybody. Some women might have wanted to stay welders and mechanics and riveters, machinists, airplane pilots. The back of the image is interesting, too. There's a, a, a row of sort of generic-looking small cookie-cutter houses, kind of like the one I live in. But then behind that, there are rows and rows of them that are so close together that they appear to be like warehouse buildings and maybe even military. So, might be a commentary also on the post-war era being defined by not only products that made their way from military to civilian uses, but also the sort of military militarization of American society. To me, one of the most fascinating parts of the image is this idea that Baca is behind the TV and she's going to emerge. She obviously painted the painting, so she's obviously not just behind or being controlled by the culture industry that's sucking Rosie the Riveter back into the household. She's in a place now where she's at least participating in the culture industry. She's making these paintings that are commenting on these situations, and she's able to, in some ways, shape that. And And I think part of the deal is that the women in the women's movement of her generation were influenced by their mother's generation that did all of these things in, so, in terms of redefining gender roles and the possibilities for women, but then were not allowed to continue that movement and their daughters maybe took up that movement. Often in my classes, I say we have a rule in America that if a man got credit for it, a woman did it first. It's not always true, but America's first poet is not Longfellow, it's Anne Bradstreet. America's first millionaire is not John Jacob Astor or Elias Haskett Derby. It's Kiza Coffin, who traded during the revolution and amassed a fortune while her husband was off killing whales. 
Judy Baca's work, I think, is really interesting in that she really depicts the women involved and the women behind um, the the scenes she stages from history. For instance, at San Jose State, she's done the Cesar Chavez Memorial, which is which is brilliant. It's beautiful. But the images juxtaposed each other, always male and female. There's Dolores Huerta, who was equally important to Cesar Chavez in the great boycott and in the formation of the United Farm Workers Union. Um, but Dolores Huerta is juxtaposed against Gandhi. There's a female farm worker juxtaposed against a male farm worker. One of the most I don't know, significant scenes in it is Cesar Chavez meeting with Bobby Kennedy. But in this, in the same scene, Baca has placed Cesar Chavez's wife and mother and sort of recontextualizing that and remembering that where Cesar Chavez gets credit for something and all props to him, he deserves it. But there were people behind what he was able to do, and those people behind what he was able to do, standing there with him, are women. And I really like that about her work, that she recognizes the often unrecognized and usually uncredited um, role of women in sort of all accomplishments. The idea of recontextualizing everything in the whole picture in American life is something that I'm very invested in. You know, sometimes when you're in an anchorage at night and the and the water is still, there's a little tidal wave that comes through. When the tide changes, there's a little shock. Bam! Shoves a wall of water and a little tidal wave comes through. It's, you know, not even knee high. Maybe half that high. And it moves very quickly. When you see the images of the giant tsunamis, if you've seen the little little shock wave when the tide turns, you understand how that could work. Obviously, it would be on a much larger scale, but it's an incredibly fast-moving wave, and you might not even notice it, like if you're asleep or if you're moving, but it just goes through a quiet anchorage. You'll hear halyards rattling and stuff and you look out and you'll just see it pass through and you'll see the boats rock and you'll see it pass and in a way I think maybe that short time of the war where women were employed in these kind of industries was like that little tidal wave that signals the change of the tide and then their daughters participated in the women's movement in a lot larger way my kid has a Rosie the Riveter little book that came from one of the museums or something. I saw it the other day when we were working on her room and it gave me an opportunity to tell her about her great-grandmother and some of these other stories that I'm thinking about now. As I've said many times before, our culture just erases itself and moves on and I think if you tell these stories and if they start with connections to family stories, then people will remember them and we can start to see the whole picture. While we're celebrating Emily Warner's achievements, for instance, we're erasing Helen Ritchie. Like, oh, we've got the first female airline pilot and that's great, but she's not the first. Before she was even born, 
there was somebody doing pretty much the same job. When she was a little girl during the war, there were a lot of women flying multi-engine aircrafts, sometimes full of troops and passengers, often in very dangerous missions, sometimes getting shot down. So props to Emily Warner. She's still around, by the way. I think it's great, and I think that she had to struggle to find that position. But there were people before her. As always, when we have that change of tide in American culture, it often erases the people who made that first push that sent out that little shock wave. And I'm just trying to put a few of them back in front of you today. And I might also add, this world is held together with chewing gum and granny spit. <laughs>